Would you take your Bibles, please, and let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 2. just a couple moments, we'll begin our reading in verse number 10. The writer of Hebrews is writing to those tempted to be drawn to outward manifestations of glory rather than the gospel by which they were saved. Many of the readers and hearers of this epistle were Jewish, And as such, their whole lives had been wrapped up in hearing of the Shekinah glory in the wilderness, the fire and smoke of God's holy presence overshadowing Sinai, the visible presence of God's glory descending upon Solomon's temple, upon Solomon's prayer of consecration. They would know so clearly and have such vivid ideas in their heads of the stories of the mighty prophets of Baal brought to nothing by the prayer of the lone hero Elijah, who called down fire from heaven to consume the soaking wet altar. They would remember the might of the parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of Assyrian general Sennacherib by the angel of God, They would think of the army of angels surrounding the enemy army during Elisha's day. And then they would think of their own situation. Saved some years now. Saved by a Messiah who had died a shameful death on a cross. They had not in a million years expected that the king of glory described in Psalm 24 would be murdered alongside common criminals. He had risen from the dead, yes, but then he had ascended rather than setting up the eternal kingdom of God from David's throne in Jerusalem. Good grief, he hadn't even taken his disciples with him when he went. He left them. They were standing, staring into heaven, after which event they were more or less shooed on to the rest of their lives by angels. Why are you standing and staring? He'll be back someday. Go on with your lives. And the lives they had gone on to lead were not lives of political power and authority with King Jesus in the final state. Rather, they were persecuted. Their Jewish brethren, with whom they shared so much history, told them that they blasphemed their God, the God of their fathers. The Greeks among whom they lived said that they were idiots and fools for believing this message of salvation by God's grace through faith in Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. So naturally, over time, as persecution and social shame increased, it was only natural that they should be tempted to look for something more exciting, something more shiny, something more supernaturally obvious than the quiet faith of patient endurance for a reality they could not see. Some were drawn, apparently, to speculate about angels and give them undue honor. 
Others were actually enticed to consider returning to classic Judaism with its clear vision of the glory of God revealed in the law of Moses on Sinai. And in all of this swirl of thoughts and experiences, in comes the writer of the book of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Spirit to show them the glory they had missed. The writer to the Hebrews returns to the gospel message and shows them that the hidden blessings and the hidden glory of the gospel far surpassed any previous revelation, whether on Sinai, angelic revelation, or prophetic vision. And this glory centers on Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God begotten before all time, as the creed says, light of light, true God of the true God. And friends, in our lives, we're often tempted to either think that the glory of the gospel is something that comforts us only in thinking about heaven, as if God has no blessings for us in this life now, only suffering. Often we think that the glory, the joy, that's all for heaven. Or else, on the other hand, we are so consumed with finding brilliant outward manifestations of glory in this life, such as miracles performed or having an experience of God speaking directly to us, that we miss the true biblical picture, that the blessings of our redemption, which are hidden but real, spiritual but truly present, and these blessings of our salvation center around understanding Jesus. This Jesus, our Savior, not only lives forever as a man, the God-man, but through salvation brings us into a relationship with himself in intimacy and privilege unsurpassed by any other relationship you have ever experienced. Jesus' salvation paves the way for you and I to be called children of God to as many as believe on his name. And this is the theme that I want to present to you this evening, not merely that we are children of God by grace, but that Jesus himself lives as our older brother in the family of God. I believe that this doctrine is not thought of much by Christians today, and the blessings are subsequently missed. There's a phrase in the chorus as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longeth after thee, that has a stanza that sums up the passage we're going to consider. It goes like this, you're my friend, and you are my brother, even though you're a king. If I'm being honest, I've always felt a little bit uncomfortable with that phrase, that it makes Jesus too familiar, that it diminishes from his holiness, and there certainly is danger in our lives of making God out to be one of the guys and thus removing him from his place of transcendence and utter holiness and uniqueness. But the Bible specifically tells me that Jesus is my brother. And more than that, that Jesus himself is not ashamed to call me his brother. It is this truth in the book of Hebrews I want to draw your attention to. And so in chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 10, let's read God's word together. For it was fitting 
that he, that being Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious Father, thank you for your inspired word. Would you give us clear understanding of it, hearts to believe its truth, and I pray that your spirit would minister that truth wisely and powerfully in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. There's four points that I want to make from this text of Scripture this evening. And the very first point is going to contradict something that I said a moment ago. The very first pronoun in verse number 10, fitting that he does not actually refer to Jesus the Son, but it refers to God the Father. The very first point that I want to draw our attention to is that God the Father is the origin of the plan of redemption. Now the reason this is the case, if you look at verse number 10, how do we know that the he there is in reference to God the Father rather than God the Son. Because if you look a little bit further down, the he perfects the founder of their salvation through suffering. The founder of their salvation, as we'll see in just a moment, is Jesus the Son. And so this pronoun he at the beginning of verse number 10 is actually a reference to God the Father who has planned out redemption for us. And the first thing that I want us to notice within this point, that God the Father is the origin of the plan of redemption, is for us to see, first of all, in verse number 10, that he is the creator of all things. It says specifically in verse number 10, look at it, for whom and by whom all things exist. Now, we do know, in fact, that along with the writer of the epistle, we also know that both Father and Son are active and present in the work of creation. In fact, in the beginning of the book of Hebrews... The Son is said to be the agent of creation. Hebrews 1-2 says that it was through the agency of the Son that God created the world. The act of creating reality is an undivided act of God. Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally involved in the act of bringing reality into existence. Here, the Father is emphasized to show his superintendence over the plan of redemption and the son's specific role of bringing that plan of redemption to fulfillment. From creation, we then move on to redemption. Look at verse number 10 and see the father's intention for humanity. Why is it that God, the father, created all things through the son? 
He wants to bring many sons to glory. What exactly does this refer to? The glory of heaven, as in one day we'll get to heaven and God the Father is going to bring us there. Or is it the glory of God's presence, maybe we'd say is perhaps a more spiritual answer. There's part of these things involved, but there's also apparently a sense here that the glory of the Father in the Son by the Spirit, the glory of the triune God, is not merely a future event to which we will come into contact. The glory of God comes to us now in our salvation. It actually has already begun its work in our hearts by recreating us. Friends, when we trust in Christ, God does a work of recreating our hearts to magnify his own glory. The Apostle Paul speaks of this when he writes of the fact that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power would be of God and not of us. We are walking thousands, myriads of prisms that reflect the light of the sun. This is not something merely to occur in the future, but it comes to us now. God multiplies and magnifies his own glory in doing something for us that we could never do for ourselves. That is to save us from our sins and bring us into union with Jesus Christ. Friends, you exist, as Ephesians 1.12 says, to the praise of his glory. The glory that will be revealed in us finally and fully has already taken root in us through our salvation from sin. And this is God's glory in us. This, I believe, is what is intended by the author when he says that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, is bringing many sons to glory. But see also, this power of God which recreates us and plants his glory in us comes through his specific plan of redemption that is accomplished in Jesus Christ. Look at God's power in the plan of redemption again in verse number 10. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This idea of the founder of their salvation firstly refers to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who accomplishes this plan of redemption that the Father initiates. And this idea of founder specifically, that word, has the idea of being a pioneer, the first one on the scene. Here, Jesus is described as the pioneer of our salvation. He blazes the trail to this glory, so to speak, through his sacrificial death on the cross. It was a tangled mess of woods that we could never hope to enter. And Jesus, through his strength and wisdom and power, has cleared the trail in such a way that it is possible for us to pursue him in this course. It was that experience of suffering which Jesus underwent on the cross, beyond that of any other human ever to live, that uniquely prepared him for his current ministry and relationship to believers now as their great high priest. The writer of the book of Hebrews says very specifically that Jesus could not be the kind of high priest that you and I need unless he had underwent the suffering of the cross. That's what it means when it says in verse number 10 that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. 
That word perfect has the idea of completion. Not that Jesus had any moral deficiencies or was in any way less than infinite as it respected his divine nature, but rather that in his suffering, he was brought to the perfect position to be humanity's representative before the Father. Nobody else can go before the Father on your behalf like Jesus did, because Jesus went through a unique suffering to blaze a trail of salvation on your behalf. So we see in verse number 10, the Father's position as the origin of the plan of redemption and the source of its application in our lives. And then after that, if that wasn't clear enough, the writer of Hebrews explicitly calls God the Father the origin or source of the one who sanctifies and the ones who are sanctified. Look there at verse number 11, the very beginning part. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Let me make this as simple as possible for us. The one who sanctifies, in verse number 11, is Jesus Christ. And he has sanctified himself by setting himself apart for the sacrifice of sin. In his death on the cross, he sanctified himself. And that sacrifice allows us then to be set apart from sin for salvation. And the writer makes very clear that the common origin of this act of sanctifying, first Jesus for himself and then for us, has its origin or source in one, God the Father. He is the origin of the plan of redemption. That's our first point in verse number 10. Number two is this. God the Father's plan creates unique fellowship between believers and Christ as siblings. Look at verse number 11, the second half of verse number 11. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. In this perfection that's brought about, this completion that is affected by the sufferings of Christ, the redemption that is brought to us to bring us to glory, something truly unique happens. In this redemption, we receive what Paul says in Romans 8 is the adoption of as sons. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Because the biblical picture and point is that Christ is to receive an inheritance as the son of the father. And that you and I, in the redemption that Christ provided, are brought into the family of God in such a way that we are made sons of God and also heirs of God's inheritance. Fellow heirs with Christ. Christ is brought into fellowship with us and we into fellowship with him as siblings. He is our brother. And here in our own passage, in verse number 11, that connection is made perfectly clear. We are adopted children of God, and Jesus Christ is our older brother. He's the firstborn, we are the adopted children. 
One theologian said that a believer should esteem his adoption as God's child as greater than being the child or heir of any earthly prince. Since the son of the greatest potentate may be the child of wrath, but the child of God by grace has Christ Jesus to be his eldest brother, with whom he is a fellow heir in heaven. He has the Holy Ghost also for a comforter and the kingdom of heaven for an everlasting inheritance. In verse 11b, Christ, sharing God the Father with us as a common source of sanctification, is not ashamed to have us for siblings. That is a shocking truth in itself. But what we want to do for the next few minutes is dig just a bit deeper and try to understand better this concept. What does it mean for Christ to be our brother? Well, I want to give you three different ways that help us understand how it is and what it means for Christ to be our brother. The first is this. He is our brother by virtue of his shared humanity. Christ was true human. Whatever it means to be human, Christ was, only without a sinful condition. Christ was truly and completely human, and also truly and completely God. The only difference between Christ's humanity and our own is that Christ is without sin. This shared humanity with us gives us a fellowship with him. A fellowship of human experience that forms part of what it means for Christ to be our brother. This is why the writer in our passage says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. It has reference to his true humanity. He is our brother in part by virtue of his human nature. Not only that, though, but he is our brother by virtue of our adoption into the family of God. We've touched on this already just a moment ago. He is our brother relationally. The Son is the second person of the Trinity, and he is so eternally. He always has been and always will be the Son of the Father. One writer put it this way, God is an adoptive father. Jesus, our elder brother, is God the Father's eternal, only begotten son. We we believers are his children through adoption. This identity is central to who we are. As adopted children, we enjoy all the rights and privileges of the relationship that God the Father enjoys with his eternal son. Friends, salvation is much, much better than we often think. Not only is he our brother by virtue of our adoption into the family of God, but he is our brother by virtue of our shared experience as children who trust in our Father. This is really interesting. Would you look down at your scripture again and look at verses 12 and 13? These verses are quotations. The first one that you see is in verse number 12, and it quotes Psalm 22. This is the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a messianic psalm that prophetically outlines the sufferings of Christ. But the amazing thing is that the result of this plan of redemption in the psalm is that Christ takes us for brothers and sisters. Verse number 13 quotes two verses in Isaiah that lie back to back. In verse number 13 of your passage in Hebrews, it reads this way, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
These are from Isaiah chapter number 8, verses 17 and 18, where the prophet writes this passage that I'm about to read. He says, quote, Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope or trust in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. In the context of Isaiah, the prophet is apparently recognizing that even though he's preaching God's message to the people, they continue to reject him. And they will continue to do so. In fact, in Isaiah chapter number 6, God the Father told Isaiah that they would reject his message. God told Isaiah that his message would be rejected. Isaiah's response to this continual rejection is to continue to trust in God that even though he will never see the people receive and accept his message, God will be faithful to his promise to change their hearts and preserve a people for himself. He has God's promise that the word that he was given will be effective. And in fact, Isaiah could see living promises in his own house because his son's names were prophecies. So when Isaiah says, behold, I and the children that God has given me, he's literally thinking, in my own children are the promises of God in their very names that God will judge and save his people in faithfulness to his word. And so Isaiah says, Lord, though I will never see the fulfillment of these promises with my eyes on this earth, I trust in you. And here in our passage, the writer of the epistle makes application from Isaiah's prophecy to Jesus Christ himself. Just like Isaiah, Jesus' message was rejected by his people. And so Jesus, with respect to his humanity, put his full trust in his heavenly Father that even though the people rejected him, that message would be effective in the lives of his disciples who would preach that message after him. Jesus trusted In his God, even though in his humanity on earth, he did not see that message received and established. And so we, the children in this passage, we also put our trust in God for that which we cannot see. In every trial of life, in every evangelistic conversation, we are putting our hope and confidence in the promises of God, just like Jesus, our elder brother, did. And the writer to Hebrews wants you to know that Jesus is your brother by virtue of the fact that you and he both trust fully in the promises of God that they are faithful, that he will bring every one of them to pass. And so because of this, because of this adoption, because Jesus is our older brother, we are brought into the family of God truly and really. Jesus is actually your older brother Jesus, as God's own eternal son and as a true human through his incarnation, is then our true brother, even though his relationship to us is not based on genetics or blood. Thus, when my relationship to Jesus is described in terms of sibling relationships and my relationship with God the Father is described as that of an adoptive parent and child, I should not think what a nice metaphor for God's love for me. No, this adoption is true and real. 
If you are a believer, then you are more truly part of God's family as his son or daughter than you are even of your genetic blood family. Jesus is more your brother than your own blood brother. God is more your father than your own earthly father. This brings us to point number three. Christ embraces us in this relationship. Christ's love for you is equal to the infinite love of the Father in his adoption of you. With all of the love which God the Father pours out on you to adopt you into his family, so Christ the brother pours out all that love on you to receive you as his brothers. He is not ashamed to call us siblings. This relationship that we've been brought into has no period of sibling adjustment. From the first second of our adoption into God's family, Jesus proudly embraces us as his own younger brothers and sisters. One theologian puts it this way, this, speaking of this verse, is a ground of unspeakable consolation unto believers with supportment in every condition. No unworthiness in them, no misery upon them shall ever hinder the Lord Christ from owning them and openly avowing them to be his brethren. He is a brother born for the day of trouble, a redeemer for the friendless and the fatherless. Let their miseries be what they will. He will be ashamed of none. And so we come to our fourth point from this text. This new relationship into which you've been brought, this true relationship to Jesus as your elder brother, is meant for your assurance and comfort in this life. God has not reserved every blessing for heaven. In the same way that maybe many of you in your family traditions allowed your children to open up a present before Christmas Day, as a foretaste of what is to come, God has not withheld every blessing for future glory. He's bestowed some of the choicest gifts on us now. And so for the next few minutes, what I want to do is I want to briefly outline for us what are the benefits of having Christ as our elder brother. We'll move quickly through them, but I want to suggest eight benefits of having Christ as our elder brother. The first is that Christ as our brother assures us of family rights. Christ as our brother assures us of family rights. We've already referenced the passage in Romans 8 where Paul wants us to know for sure that our adoption certainly means the expectance of an inheritance. That we are fellow heirs with God. John 1 also similarly teaches us this in verse number 11, that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Number two, Christ is our brother assures us of loving fellowship with him. Assures us of loving fellowship with him. Both in relationship and in purpose. 
Friends, can I just give you comfort that no matter the mistakes that you made today or this week, there was not one second where Jesus regretted having you for a sibling. No sin, no weakness, no flaw could ever diminish his joy in having you be part of the family. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. But also in purpose, as we mentioned before from the quotations from Isaiah, the writer of the book of Hebrews is making the point that in Christ's fellowship with us as children of God, he trusted in his heavenly father just as we are called to trust in our heavenly father. We have a common purpose of showing the complete faithfulness of God by trusting our father through the worst difficulty. Isn't it comforting to know that whatever difficulty you go through, Jesus knows what it's like to have to trust God when he can't see what's going on. Number three, Christ as our brother guarantees that we are protected by our older brother's strength. The phrase in verse number 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I remember my dad sitting my brothers and I around the kitchen table and, you know, you spend the first many years of a young child's life teaching them not to hit and fight. But I'll never forget when my dad got us around and said, if somebody starts hurting one of your siblings, you better step in and defend them. It's one of the greatest joys of being an older sibling is to protect and defend your younger siblings. You think about that attraction maybe at the fair, the festival, where there's flashing lights and maybe a dark little uh, walk through, and the young child is too scared to walk through it. So the older sibling takes their hand, says, come with me, I'll show you. I'll keep you safe. I'll protect you. There's real danger from the devil, but Jesus Christ, our brother, will protect us throughout our entire journey And in fact, he himself went through the hardest part first to blaze this trail to destroy the devil for us. Number four, Christ as our brother guides us through death. He partook of the same things that through death he would deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, each of us individually has to face death on our own. That is, nobody else can do it for us. But in that moment, when you have fellowship with none else on earth, you have fellowship with your older brother who went through death to take everything scary out of death. He did it because he loves you as an older brother who's not ashamed to have you a part of the family and gladly assumes all of the responsibilities of being the oldest brother. Everything that is fearful and terrifying about death has already been dealt with by Jesus Christ. Christ as our brother exercises an effective ministry as our high priest. 
It says this in verse number 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Friends, the comfort here is that Christ's ministry as a high priest is neither begrudging nor periodic. He exercises his office faithfully and mercifully. He understands your human weakness and thus appropriately makes sacrifices of prayers before the Father on your behalf as high priest. He relishes the opportunity to make intercession before God for his people because he knows what it is like to be a suffering human. And his service to you never ceases day or night. You go to sleep while your older brother Jesus gladly and joyfully continues to pray for you by name before his father and your father. Christ, as our brother, is sympathetic to the weaknesses of our flesh. There's some overlap here. Verse number 18, he's a merciful and faithful high priest who himself has suffered. His is not a condescending or sort of distant pity. He's deeply and closely affected by the knowledge of our weakness and suffering because he himself has undergone such things. When we say that Jesus Christ is merciful towards us, we take that literally. We believe that he truly knows and sympathizes. Christ, as our brother, is an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Look at verse number 17, the second half of it. He was a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Only a true human can make an appropriate sacrifice for sin. Imagine a child who gets in trouble, say, for disobeying a clear command and then lying about it. They're caught, and as soon as mom or dad explains the consequences which will certainly follow, the child raises his or her hand and says, Mommy... I would like to offer up my stuffed animal, Fluffy, as the substitute for my punishment. I am willing to make Fluffy take the time out in my place so that I don't have to. There are a couple of issues with that. Fluffy is an inanimate object. And so to put Fluffy in time out doesn't do much either for the child or for Fluffy. Secondly, there's no reason for Fluffy to have the ability to represent a child in this case It's not apples and apples. So the writer of Hebrews says in chapter number 10, verse number 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Earlier in chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, he says this, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ, as a true human, is qualified to represent you, to represent humanity, just as Adam, our common forebear, was the representative of us in sin. Jesus represents us as a sacrifice which is acceptable and appropriate before God the Father. 
to make propitiation for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But your elder brother has been made like his brothers in every respect to make an appropriate sacrifice. And finally, Christ as our brother gives example and help during temptation. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When we suffer temptation, we have in mind the perfect hero, our older brother Jesus, who will never let us down, who overcame temptation in such a way that calls us to follow his example. And currently, in your experience and dealings with sinful temptations of all sorts every day, you have an older brother who is praying to God the Father for you. John Owen, the same writer that we referenced earlier, says this, Let the world now take its course, and the men thereof do their worst. Let Satan rage and the powers of hell be stirred up against them. That's us. Let them load the siblings of Christ with reproaches and scorn and cover them all over with the filth and dirt of their false imputations. Let the world bring them into rags, into dungeons, into death. Christ comes in the midst of all this confusion and says, Surely these are my brethren, the children of my father, and he becomes their savior. And this is a stable foundation of comfort and supportment in every condition. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of Jesus as our older brother provides for us a comfort for every trial. Let's understand and rejoice in the blessings of salvation which God has already provided to us as children. Let's not be distracted by placing our hope in showy displays of God's glory when he's already manifested his glory by adopting us as his children. And let's not become cynical by thinking that this life is only one of suffering with no blessings for this life except in thinking of heaven. By all means, think of heaven and rejoice in your inheritance. But don't forget that right now, today, at this moment, Christ is already your older brother who ministers to you in so many ways. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the comfort of your word, which gives us comfort in all of our trials so that we can then comfort those who are distressed by any trial. Thank you for Jesus, who gladly receives us as his siblings and for every ministry that he accomplishes on our behalf because of his love for us. We give you praise for this, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.